Welcome to Coffee House. It is allergy season. <laughs> that means my normally dulcet tones will be dramatically affected. But rather than hibernate to not say another word until late May, uh, I figure I'm going to push through it and will, if necessary, to maintain the gravitas of the message I'm trying to get through here. Take the occasional medication, which I am loath to do just in general. You know, I did not have any allergies whatsoever until my ex-girlfriend. And she was swarming with them, so I don't know. Not saying, but I'm saying. So, the archaeology of mind. We had, we've had three parts so far. We've got a fourth part coming, but this one is a discussion of part one. So don't, don't worry. <laughs> you did not have to cram for this test. I will remind you of what, what was discussed in part one. And we'll have a bit of a discussion about that. Then we're going to go on to that Bezos biography just in the wake of elon musk buying twitter he says his intentions are to have a digital public square that that's the point so we'll see how that happens and one thing just back and forth on this obviously i think it's an excellent thing twitter's been an incredibly frustrating source of regime authority for a long time now ever through the trump presidency and everything related to covid it's just it's been infuriating so it can't get much worse and i'm gonna say that with confidence (laughs) That it couldn't get much worse. So we'll see what Elon Musk does with it. I do think there's going to be a twist somewhere in here. It's not just going to be as simple as Elon Musk steps in and everything is peachy. I think there's going to be a twist. But we'll see as that comes down the line. So... The biography about Bezos coming up. We've got Journey into the End of Night, I think is what it's called. It's the fiction that we're working on. And we'll have other ones. I I can't remember specifically right now. But anyway, so we're going to talk about the archaeology of mind for, for the moment. So, part one specifically discussed effective neuro- neuroscience versus cognitive neuroscience. This is something that Pong up. Uh, it's kind of the central tenet of kind of the basic theme of the book is that affective neuroscience likely is going to be more fruitful as a method of study than cognitive neuroscience when we're trying to figure out why people do what they do. And one thing he points out in that first part is that behaviorism dominated for about 50 years when it came to psychology. And behaviorism treated the brain as a black box didn't care what was actually going on in the brain just looked at the resulting behaviors and tried to work from there to decide how people functioned and one thing that he points out early on in this is that even Pavlov didn't reject the emotions or the affects related to you know the the dogs that he was getting to respond to the bell he didn't reject affect and its importance in what it came to uh, that phenomenon but Skinner did the behavior BF Skinner he rejected emotions in general So we've had, and this is something that I've espoused on occasion, this kind of simple male idea, usually male idea, about reason versus emotion, and there's a binary, and that you either have reason or you have emotion, and you have, those two things are eternally at at war. Once you've squashed the emotions, then your unfettered reason will take over. Now, of course, there's some truth to it that we have these emotional inclinations that can irrationally push us one direction or another. It's like a a marionette that's, even though we might have our own volition to the extent that we can, that all these things that we don't understand, the emotions, are things that would pull us one way or another. But emotion, in reality, is a value mechanism, and it works with reason to try to figure out, okay, what's valuable and how do we get what's valuable? So the emotional system attributes value, and then reason is used as a more efficient means of achieving the state of value once you've decided what things are valuable and what things are not. 
So there's this kind of simple idea that you can take also from from the way that he sets this up is that some parts of our brain have more experience than others. They're more ancient. There are some parts of our brain that go back to the crustaceans and they go through the reptiles and our shared ancestor with primates and they have greater built-in wisdom because they've been around for much longer than something like the neocortex. And they're more likely also to be more complex and robust and have more opaque influences on us, things that we can't really access. So for Pongsep, it's it's clarifying to look at animals, to look at it in animals, and likely for the reason that they don't have the same mediator that we have to the same extent. Obviously, other primates have a neocortex, but it's smaller. But likely, they don't have as much of a mediator, so we can get better access to the more ancient aspects of our brain by looking at other mammals. So when we're doing this, when we're trying to figure this out, one of the things that I think I brought up along the lines here is that a meaningful demarcation when you're trying to study psychology probably is between men and women. And while the author specifically talks about how if you introduce testosterone at various times, then you're going to get the same effects on men and women. And it's actually a mediating force in the determination of how many characteristics that are mostly related to each each sex you're going to get. There are likely enough differences on the whole from a normative perspective between men and women that it would make a lot more sense to have those demarcations when you're starting out, when you're trying to study psychology. And then you can move from there to like the Myers-Briggs. I don't know how canon or useful the Myers-Briggs personality types are today, but you could start breaking it down in those ways and then doing your studies on that basis as opposed to just kind of lumping everybody together. So, of course, Pongsep in this book, he's trying to better define, understand, and have a theory about the affective system and how that's a useful means of understanding how people function. Uh, the question thereafter is, okay, what to do with this knowledge? So, it could be used as many advertisers and social media company, companies use gathering this kind of knowledge to be more effective at manipulation of people, what they do, what their behaviors are going to be. It could be used as Pongsep kind of drives that to create more effective treatments of psychopathology or just any kind of psychological ailment. If you understand it better and you incorporate both affective neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience in trying to treat somebody, it's likely going to be much more effective for uh, psychopharmacology to be able to allay a lot of the psychological problems that people have. My follow-up question, uh, this is going to sound terrible, but is everybody worth it? (laughs) So this is something that I've been considering. So there's on one side, of course, that everybody is is worth it. No matter the amount of work or effort or anything that has to go into it, this is something that kind of the founders had a basic idea of, and Christianity and other Abrahamic religions had a basic idea of, is that everybody, no matter their characteristics, how effective they are, uh, what they do or don't do throughout their lives, everybody is worth it. There's uh, some kind of value to every human life. But when it comes to, say, psychological treatment or something like that, or in other spheres of society, there is the question, is how much labor do you enact to try to repair somebody when the distance from something that's uh, where they are and what's going to be good or useful to them and to society is so great that it might not make sense? So, think of these terms. So, uh, you need a house. And start with the premise that you need a house, you're looking for a house. So, in the first instance, you have the perfect house. It's a five bed and four bath. It's got plenty of square footage. It's got a backyard. It's got an attached garage. It's all finished. It's got new paint, new roof, uh, whatever, a bird. I don't know what you want, but so it's a perfect house. It's wonderful. You get to move in and it's there and you don't have to worry about it. In the second instance, you have a good house. It needs some work. There's a little water damage. You're not really a fan of the color throughout or the backsplash in the kitchen. And you kind of wanted a French door refrigerator. So it's going to take some sweat equity 
to make it close to perfect. You're going to have to put some effort into it. It's probably never going to be perfect. And then in the third instance, you just have a hilly plot of land with snake pits and where the center mound has been conquered by fire ants. And you would have to get all of the materials and build the whole thing by yourself. You know, hammer in hand uh, with a a planer or whatever else you need. And you're going to be the one doing it. And you have to learn how to be an electrician and all the other things to be able to do this. So how how much effort and resources do we actually spend on that plot of land? If we had perfect efficiency and unlimited resources and unlimited time, then sure, we could we could do whatever we want and uh, and get that thing built into the perfect house. But imagine you personally working on one of these plots of land. So you eschewed the perfect house and the good house, and you said, oh, the plot of land, that's what I'm going to work on. And you spend 50 years battling fire ants and decapitating snakes and digging out a square for the foundation. You realize you're 75 now and you just want to go bowling is that really the best way to manage our time and resources you know if you needed a quantum physicist you wouldn't go to a poodle first and try to teach to them so there has to be a cost-benefit analysis obviously for every aberrant or inefficient psychological state or on the other hand just the meme of every single person no matter who they are they have value is actually worth it And it's something that archetypally, it has more of a benefit long term than excising all the weak and useless people that are in the population. So that's a question. And it kind of ties into what's going on with Twitter, too, because Elon Musk hasn't said, okay, we're going to exclude the dumbest people, the, you know, bottom whatever percentage of dumb people. We're going to exclude them from Twitter to make it a more robust conversation. He said it's the principle of the First Amendment of freedom of speech that's going to be the motivating factor and that's something that has greater wisdom built into it than any one person who's going to be the arbiter of who could speak or who could live but i do wonder you know there is something to the reality of there are some people that you can't get through to no matter how much work you put in how brilliant you are how much effort or whatever you have finite time finite resources and you're not going to be able to do that with everybody and that has a you know obviously a leftist bent this is one of the things that they hide behind all the time around rationalization that well what does it matter i'm not going to enact the labor i think that i used that phrase earlier and i hated it when i used it in my brain i was like oh i hate that because that's one of the things that uh one of the early woke proponents i remember on a tv show she specifically said to the host she was like oh, i'm not going to enact the labor of explaining this to you <laughs> And he was like, okay, so see ya. And it was one of the most annoying things that I had ever seen. So that phrase by itself. But for uh, the progressives, it's just a matter of, I already know all the correct answers. And therefore, uh, if you're not accepting all my correct answers, that it's your problem. You're the one who's at fault here. And of course, the reality is none of us should be in that position who gets to say, I already know all the correct answers. And so you should just be imbibing everything that I say, rather than following me down a, you know, a line of reasoning uh, uh, and then having all the caveats for whatever conclusion we run into. But so when it comes to Twitter, it seems like the wise benefit, wise long-term benefit of having everybody in that openness and giving everybody some kind of value, even if it's unlikely that a lot of these idiots are going to contribute anything to a conversation, that archetypal benefit is greater than the benefit of excluding them from the conversation. So anyway... That was a discussion of part one. It's just ideas that kind of stem from the topics that we discuss in that one. It's a good book. It's a great book. (laughs) There are a lot of fantastic ideas going through it, and it helps clarify a lot of things about something that's still in its infancy when it comes to psychology and neurology. 
So hopefully we can get some more out of the other parts and we'll have some other books coming up. I'm going to finish that Bezos thing and uh, we'll get that one up and then we'll have some more after that. But I hope all is well and I hope people are enjoying notwithstanding this damn pollen. (laughs) I hope uh, everybody's enjoying the weather at least and I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. (laughs) 